That was what scared me when I when I spun this out was you could take 10 clients and do well for them, right? You could have a couple of guys assisting you. That, that's not the issue. The issue is at scale, can this be done at the elite level? Blanket SEO tactics can only take your firm so far. Selecting an SEO company that understands the legal space and provides lasting value is essential to scale. One guy and his boxers can take on a couple sites and do some good work. But is that something that's going to be replicable and scalable? Because you see a lot of stuff where that's great for one site, but can you get that across your entire portfolio? You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to growth strategies for your firm. I'm Sonia Palmer. VP of Operations at Rankings, and host to our new podcast, Lawher, a look at the brightest and boldest female attorneys in criminal, PI, family law, and beyond. At Rankings, we help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings with search engine optimization. Today, we're doing things a little differently. I'm filling in for Chris, who caught up with founding partner of DC-based Price Benoits, Seth Price. Growing a firm from two partners to a team of 40 in less than a decade requires an in-depth understanding of the digital marketing landscape. Seth was an early adopter of SEO and workshopped each new strategy on his firm. Seth led his in-house team with so much success that he created an entirely separate venture, Blue Shark Digital. Today, the agency serves lawyers in 31 states and Canada. An important first step for any lawyer is to really understand the people around them. So let's get to know our guest. Here's founding partner at Price Benoits and founder of Blue Shark Digital, Seth Price. I built the website and it took off and we hired another lawyer, built another website, hired another lawyer, a strategy that may not be what's in vogue today, but worked really well when we started and then started digging deeper into different verticals and different jurisdictions. I'm well aware that through normal relationship referral marketing, I couldn't have had the growth that we had, but it was literally um, fundamental SEO and digital marketing that drove that growth. Yeah, that's fantastic. Your price benefits, you know, being an SEO person myself, it, it ranks incredibly well. You have, you have many clients from Blue Shark, which we're going to talk about that do really well. Let's talk about just a little bit touching on that and on the referral side kind of expound on that about what you mean. Cause a lot of people are like, Oh, I just get referrals. And, and, like and there's nothing and it's awesome. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. It's amazing. I love it. But my firm started before we did PI, we, my law partners, uh, sort of a lawyer's lawyer on the criminal side and, you know, referrals on criminal are really tough. You get a settlement check. People tell their friends, you know, you get divorced, you go through it. You're going through that for a long period of time and you somebody gets you through it. But like on the criminal side, referrals, you can go to all the BNIs you want. You're not going to make a buck. You might get a case here or there, but the ROI in your time is really tough. So to me, you talk about, you know, digital marketing and legal, right? We're really talking about the B2C side of the world, right? And of that, there's the sector that you know you, you focus on and the, the contingency and, and PI MedMal world that's you know probably half the game there. But that I always look at that there's like almost like a slope. And the, the areas like criminal where there's less TV players, no billboards, that people get arrested, they're not talking to their friends about it. That's the most ripe, let's say, for digital. In the injury space, some people see their friends who got a big check. Some may see a TV advertisement or a billboard, and many go to digital where it's great, but it's not the only ship. And then as you go down that, maybe you see family, and at the bottom, it might be like a trust in estates where most of it is referral-based. Most people are going to a financial planner, and a very small subset of them are going to digital. The good news is less people are fighting for it, so you have a better shot compared to a PI where there's no secret. Everybody is doing it that, you know, looking at each of those and understanding where you are in that sort of continuum as far as how many eggs should be in that basket. That makes a lot of sense. And I've, I've never had it put to me like that in terms of the different areas of the law and their need and the saturation. Another thing that I immediately think of is like a criminal attorney when they're trying to get a review, the, the consumer's not going to say, I spoke with uh, my attorney and he was the best domestic battery lawyer. We've been playing the review game for a lot longer than it's been hip. 
And uh, yes, that's a huge issue. So you just want to talk about, you're talking about firm, and then all of a sudden Google brought in, hey, we want to see terms in our review, which gets dicey. And so things like, hey, we don't really want you talking about it, but maybe the point of contact, the person paying for the case, et cetera, using that as a way in. And then just to finish that thought from before, you know, something like trust in estates, everybody needs a will. But going back to relationship marketing, you know, there are areas where it works really, really well to market, to find, you know, whether it be real estate agents or financial planners, they can make a trust in the state lawyer a lot of money. Similarly, a PI lawyer, you know, they can go to non-PI lawyers. And the great thing about that world is, you know, offering people a third of cases they send you, there's a built-in mechanism for that to, to take place in, in most markets. And so you're you're basically balancing those different things. And I also say, and I think this is, a, you probably agree with this for yourself, people do what they like to do. You like this podcast, you do the podcast. If you didn't like doing it, you'd have one podcast and there'd be no more. So when a lawyer comes to me and says, should I blog? I'm like, well, if you love to write, do it because it'll get deep and people will connect and it's going to be, a, you know, it'll create great content and you'll do it. You know, whereas how many blogs do you see where there's been like one post and then it disappears or they do one post and then it's just regurgitated blog content and figuring out what you like to do. So if you love to network, you know me, I, I love that. I've you know done a, a lot of that. You, you like sitting here, you people come to you, you sit in your place, they come to your podcast and they hire you. That's freaking awesome. So I think you have to figure out what you like to do, what resources you have. And then with that, you know, I could have networked from today until, you know, 40 years and not had three criminal lawyers because there's only so much you can do in that world versus other areas. And we know PI lawyers who don't do hardly any digital and are just known in their community. People know it's where they go to and they're not paying a, a rankings or a blue shark. They're keeping a hundred cents on the dollar after their sweat equity of networking. And there's not probably have margins that that's your past larger advertising firms the firm that comes to mind is Shinara, right? Shinara's got the billboard king. He's got tons of billboards, but he has always kind of been resistant to SEO and content marketing. Well, it's because he, he's done really well with the board, billboards and, and that traditional marketing space. You've excelled at SEO and content marketing. So how did you identify that this was like a great channel? And when did you know it was time to spin it out into its own marketing business? Well, it, it, we knew very on that there was something there. It wasn't called SEO. It built a website and didn't know I was doing SEO, right? I was putting content up, my original content way back in the day, by today's standards, absurdly spammy. You know, a personal injury lawyer in DC needs a DC personal injury lawyer. Crazy nonsense. My partner would cringe on the crib, but it worked. You know, our biggest blog post early on was about a Britney Spears DUI that got on before the AP and just blew up and didn't make us a penny. But, you know, I was, I would Google and find every directory that was out there and just start making submissions myself and then an assistant and two assistants. There was no industry of SEO. You knew that if you took certain actions and built, just building out the website, most people had a brochureware. And if you went one step beyond brochureware, over time, I connected with people like our good buddy, Jason Hennessy and others, where I was just like, I need to get smart on this. And nobody knew anything. There were overseas resources that were, you know, very spammy, but worked and sort of balancing that. It was as an entrepreneur, it was very difficult because you knew that this, this overseas spamminess worked, but you didn't want to put all your eggs in that basket because you knew at some point that gig was going to be up. And sure enough, it was. Knowing when to spin it out is a really good question. I, I was probably pretty late to the game in a lot of a lot of respects because I wanted to get it right for myself. Like every dollar I put into marketing my firm, uh, you know, in sort of the same conversation you might have somebody, why shouldn't they do SEO in-house? And I said, you know what? If you can get the right resources in-house, God bless you. You know, there's questions of do, do you really have the right skill sets? Are you going to have turnover? Can it be managed, et cetera? All those are fair, valid questions. But I was sort of building that mousetrap myself. There are an elite number of a few of us that I feel like know what we're doing. There are plenty of people out there that, that sort of said, hey, I'm here. I'm your SEO guy. And you, you know, you scratch beneath the surface, they have a hundred clients and 10 employees. And you're like, how could you possibly be adding any value to people? So I felt like I had to build the mousetrap first scalable for myself. I was, I had a whole family of websites that was in the dozens. And I felt like until I had my own systems down, it was very tough to make that leap 
for me, a person who I had mentored from intern to, you know, manager to director is somebody who was able to take that and it was partially giving that person and our team opportunity, which again, an issue with an internal marketing team is that there's no real way for advancement. You're not cutting that person in on the law firm. Maybe in Arizona you can now, but generally that's not an option. And that people generally look at it as as an internal cost rather than an opportunity. So by spinning it out, A, I felt the systems were right, but B, I had gone through a revolving door historically of losing top deputies every couple of years because it wasn't just they were going off to compete. It was more like, you know, I'll do something else. There wasn't there wasn't a future there. One guy became a sports agent. Another guy did international government contracts. They sort of were like, hey, I can't see anywhere to go. And right now, you know, we're able to, I think, build and scale and have uh, silos of people where the great people become managers and have a future. And that's different than, so waited till I got to critical mass and could roll that out and provide value as opposed to just saying I'm another schmuck SEO. What I love is you have a, a natural feedback loop. So you have Price Benowitz, get to see what works, and then you can go implement it. Part of what this podcast is for me is, you know, I don't own a law firm, so I get to speak with individuals like yourself, experts, other attorneys, and I use it for a feedback loop to then, then I can try to provide more value to the clients that I serve. The other thing recently, Seth, is, and I'm glad you mentioned this about spinning it out. Everyone talks about M&A and they talk about the, the different trajectories for business growth, but you know, M&A is this horizontal integration. Typically, it's like a complementary service. And, and most people don't think of the vertical integration, which would be backwards integration, where it's maybe you outsource content to strategic partners and you bring it in-house, or you're an auto manufacturer that just buys the tires and then you start making the tires. For you, your forward integration is the marketing company, kind of in a reverse manner. Typically, you have uh, the marketing agency and then you want to go to the consumer. So you've got an auto dealer and now he has an auto dealership where they're selling the cars or manufacturer than the dealership. So <laughs> there's a lot of ways to, to, to spin this. And I think it's super smart. And, you know, with the whole contingency restriction on, on many markers that don't have the legal degree, you're giving value and you're treating those people in a way that they can have growth. I think that you're an exception to the rule because you have a number of close contacts where your feedback loop is is pretty darn good. We have used our firm, as I'm sure some of your top clients, as sort of the incubator. Price balance will roll it out to others because the analogy that I give, and this is the this is sort of the dirty secret that you and I live with, right? You know things that you can do that that could get law firm success very quickly. I don't see it as much recently, but there used to be. Don't pay me till you're on the first page of Google. Don't pay till certain things are done. And I'm always like very reticent in those things because. Because to me, what's under the hood? You could get somebody there very, very quickly. The question is, will they remain? And the analogy I always give people is somebody who's, who's doing a renovation on a, on a, if they're renovating a house or an apartment, there's a certain number of things that, you know, you may or may not pull a permit for. And nobody's ever know. If you like, don't pull a permit for drywall, is anybody really going to find out? Is that going to come down on your head? No. But if you don't pull a permit for uh, an electrical change, it's all fine until the house burns down and all of a sudden, you know, you're in trouble. Now, if you're going to live in the house, that risk calculus changes, right? You could say, you know what, I'm not going to pull a permit. If it burns down, I'll get my family out. Nobody's suing me. Versus if you're going to put renters in there, you know, then all of a sudden that that risk calculus changes. And so to me, it's always really fascinating. And, you know, I think that all of us go through a frenetic thought process about what pulleys we want to pull. How close to a private blog network are you? How many types of links are you getting from places that are on the bubble? You know, what is sort of gray versus black versus white? And if it's your own rankings, and you've done very well with your sort of, you know, legal SEO for market prominence, like you can take risks that you may not want to take with somebody else's money or somebody else's rental, but with your place, you can do certain things. And so that's always sort of a back and forth for me between the aggressiveness, because your best friend client, if you make a wrong move and the house burns down, it's lawsuit or worse. We saw like early on, 
people turn very quickly. You want to make sure that you're doing right, that it's white hat, but you know, I take it even more seriously for somebody else's house. And that to me is always that back and forth between making sure it's aggressive enough to get ROI and move the business along, help them dominate. But at the same time, you know, you'd like to be able to educate people, but unless you had like almost like going to one of these crazy extreme sport things, there's a new thing in New York where you can like climb up a flight of stairs, 60 flights above the earth, you know, and you're signing away your life before you do it. You know, if you could get a client to say, I'm going to do some batshit crazy stuff and you have to be good with it crashing, there's this percent chance it's going to crash. Like it's all well until it crashes, in which case, you know, so I'm always struggling with, that piece where you want to be super aggressive, I test as much as I can, but that's that's sort of a piece of the puzzle. I've ran into that many times too. And some, and we do have some of those clients that are like, hey, let's do this. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, let, let me tell you what'll happen if you do that. Let's talk about the risks, right? And it's kind of a short-term viewpoint on some of those decisions. love that Seth sees crazy ideas as opportunities to up-level the digital marketing game. Chris wanted to know how the algorithm changes push Blue Shark further. You know, I, I've historically have always loved algorithm updates because every time they've hit, they've pushed us further. If you do the fundamentals, we know the fundamentals. It's, there's no secrets of, you know, high quality links, great authoritative content, you know, well-coded site. You put those things together. So they're generally, again, they're exceptions. Again, some percentage of your people are going to hit, you know, this local, the recent uh, local piece that, that hit with proximity, you know, some of the more dominant players have had some issues because all of a sudden that one downtown Chicago location is not the golden child anymore. You know, you need seven golden children to own a city, not one. Given that there are all these different voices out in people's ears, I think the good news is the market has consolidated that there are not a thousand people out there. There's a handful of people that seem to have gotten consistent results over time. And to me, that's sort of a good thing in that, you know, there is a path to follow. If you follow it with time and resources, you know that you'll have a good chance for success. Absolutely. You have to adapt, you know, like you, you have to look at things that are that are timeless and evergreen and have to be willing to to iterate when you need to, you know, like we've touched a lot on on the local and SEO and content marketing and, and, and completely agree on those three core principles, you know, good content, good links, a well coded site, that's the pillars of SEO. And, you know, if you get one of those wrong, a lot of times you can't rank, sometimes you get lucky, but but most of the time it takes all three. I know you're very pro digital, but let's let's not ostracize and only talk about, you know, digital as, as the way. Where does traditional marketing come into place? You know, TV, radio, billboards. You dance with what you like and what you're good at and what you can sort of test ROI. I mean, look, we both know plenty of people that made a lot of money with TV advertising. You know, they've crushed markets. I'm not one of those people that says you should do SEO in lieu of X, Y, or Z. You know, there are people who have run internal referral programs that are amazing, that I'm envious of. I think you, you dance with what you got. I've, I've sort of morphed to the point where I'm not going to convince somebody to do SEO. Like, meaning if they want it, I am one of the providers that, you know, and I could show somebody how we plan to roll things out for them, what we do, past successes, no guarantee of future results. We can give them a roadmap. But to me, that isn't the, the conversation that I, I love to have. I'm not going to say if you can make money with radio, you should do it. If you make money with TV, God bless. In fact, as you know, better than anybody, probably like the guys who do TV, it makes your job that much easier. And you're able to get a conversion rate in search. You get somebody the fourth spot, not the first spot. And yet they have a brand in the market that's going to convert and you're going to look better in there. So this is not an either or I sort of say, hey, this is the piece of the widget that we're going to do. We're not pretending to do your TV for you. In fact, I could say this is something I could say pretty certainly there's almost no example of a great digital provider that also does TV. I'm sure somebody's going to call me up and there are people that are improving what was defective. I get it. But like there was a, a very prominent TV shop that does everything. And I was at a conference and they're very nice, lovely, awesome evangelists. 
I was like, tell me who your three greatest digital success stories are. And they gave me three and I looked at all three with her. Not one was on the first two pages. There was third, fourth, fifth pages of Google. Now, this is just to say, the analogy I always give is growing up, the gift for a teenager was the stereo. It had a turntable, it had a tuner. And when I was of age, it was a cassette player. Earlier it was eight track, later it was DVD. And I, to me, it was like back in the day, the widget was like $200 plus or minus and it had everything you wanted. But my friends who were real sound aficionados wouldn't do that. They'd buy a separate turntable, a separate tape deck, and a separate tuner, and that gave you better sound. And so to me, the interesting thing about like, what should you do? Whatever works. I'm agnostic on that. I just love this particular piece of it. And because I love it, I do it really well. And we focus on that. And we're not pretending to say we're going to be your TV media ad buyer. Part of it has been that from historically, the people with TV and regional brands made so much money, they didn't care about digital. You've seen this. You've seen big TV players who are pound your chest. And they have no real local SEO. Now, Google has done a good job, good job. They've done a job recently of identifying that because of the name search coming in and giving them credit and bump them up. But generally, there are many guys who crushed it, fewer and farther between, but you get people and you're like, you've got to be shitting me. Like, how could you be this sophisticated, be this dominant in a market, have no SEO? Less and less, more of them have found people like you, me, and others. For many, many years, that was that huge jump. And there still are some of those unicorns out there that they make so much money, they just don't care. When I see those individuals and we run our ARFs or SEMrush report and I see, you know, nothing's ranking and I see the homepage and it's got, you know, 10,000 searches for the brand, I'm kind of like licking my lips, right? Because it's just primed. And sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. Sometimes they're like, no, we're good running joke within our industry, which is here's somebody who's so right, it wouldn't take that much to move the needle. And yet they're like, yeah, I'm good. So part of it is we've worked with a number of people in that space with like mega, mega TV players and totally dysfunctional operations. And it was it was amazing that they, I felt like they made money despite it, which showed how powerful TV was for a very, very long time. And not that it's dead, there are still people making money with it. Digital marketing today requires more resources than it did in the past. Chris asked Seth about how the market has changed and how to better measure ROI. It takes more resources today. This is what has switched. And, and you're as, you know, I think responsible for helping move the market as anybody, which is it used to be you paid five, ten thousand dollars for SEO, and the phone rang and it was an unlimited ROI. You know, what we just saw with this proximity search is Google saying no, they're, they're cutting back more and more on the free lunch, which kind of sucks. But I think that instead of measuring your ROI as, you know, we, we were counting my paid search or counting my LSAs, but this is just a freebie that the difference is that people are saying it's not a free lunch anymore, that Google's getting more sophisticated in a bunch of areas and that the competition is raised. You know, there's a handful of very good agencies out there that so in a given market, there'll be multiple people fighting for it. And that people are now looking at stuff as an ROI. And that if they're making the idea of like, oh, I could spend $10,000 a month on something and I'm getting, let's say, $50,000 worth of cases, I'm making this up. Then people are saying, oh, it's not like it's a free lunch. If I spend 20, I could start seeing more and looking at it the way they look at paid search. People look at paid search and they really dig down deep. They really dig deep to say, what is my ROI from that? People are slowly starting to look at that from organic in a way that historically they haven't. They looked at it like I pay a flat amount and I get a ton. The ability to get ROI from traditional PPC in some markets doesn't exist anymore. Or if it is, it's at a number where you're essentially gambling, hoping to get a five-star case. History is written by the victor. LSAs gave us a moment of a panacea where there was some crazy ROI. Great. But that was, as we've seen, already tightened up. So that as those things go away and lead gen, sometimes you get a good lead gen group. Often it's nonsense. I know for myself, because I test a ton of them, you know, 
couple work, but it's again, it's if they're buying PPC and as good as they are, it's showing that all of a sudden your options for ROI are so few and far between. Now it comes back, you know, I'm not looking at this as like, let me pay a flat amount and hope for something. It's like people are saying, I want more. What can you do to get there? And therefore, it becomes more of an ROI discussion rather than I'm going to pay this amount and hope something happens. I think the big thing that we we talk about there too is SEO can be an asset, right? You're, you're creating equity in your site. The more content that you create gives you the more opportunities. May not necessarily rank. You may need a lot more links and things to promotion and may need just time for the content to rank. It can become an asset. The, and I, you know, you see those individuals still in, selling four blogs a month. It's like, you can't do that and stand out because everyone's doing that and you're just treading water. You're building an asset that is an opportunity for a better, let's see, the goal in life is better than a three to one ROI, right? That's sort of like the, the Mendoza line of your baseball fan. When you see PPC dropping below the Mendoza line, potentially, right? Which, which sucks, but as the costs have gone up, it's made the, the opportunity to build that asset and see something. The devil that we have picked to deal with is that it's not a straight line. You're building that asset. There are points with time and resources that you get over that hump and that you can get those great R, but sort of you're sitting there, people, because of the limited options, are now more willing to put resources in. I'm more often saying, what can I do to expand? Whereas the traditional SEO model, when I look at the people that came before both of us, page one solutions, Dan Goldstein, great guy, sort of was doing this for 15, 20 years, that you know, one of the things he saw, which I'm now seeing is that it used to be that you could never raise pricing on a client. Clients were like, this is my SEO number. There's no inflation number. It's just, I'm there and I'm, locked in for life, I'm seeing more and more people come to me and say, hey, I want more. And I, and when I look at a great player like yourself or others, the only time that I ever see somebody come to me and say, you know, 98% of the time when somebody comes and wants to come to our company, it's for one we either know is not a great company or something else. Every once in a while, it's like, I remember there was, there would be somebody who was a great name that would come to us. And I was like, very often, it wasn't they weren't doing a good job. They had a legacy deal for a few thousand dollars and never readjust to the fact that the four blog posts a month don't do it. And that if you want to do 40 pieces of content, that's a very different price point than what you locked into 10 years ago when much less resources were needed. So it's not necessarily that it was a bad group and that it's, I don't understand the human nature piece. I'd love to get your thoughts, but I see a lot of people and you've been the beneficiary of this and probably, you know, to a lesser extent, the, the negative is that people sort of make a move rather than saying, hey, I just need more of what I have, but human nature doesn't seem to do that. Like we don't raise pricing often. I'm seeing more of it in recent months, much, much more yeah. of it recent quarters, but that there's a psychological thing, like this is what's needed rather than let me, I've spent to my detriment, I think saying, hey, let me get you a great ROI rather than like, here are the resources to really blow this out. Yeah, and Seth, let's, let's put it on the table here. It's not even just that. They're actually getting less because all of our costs have increased. So if they've been paying, you know, a legacy price and, you know, inflation every single year, you know, inflation's crazy right now, they actually get less. So it's actually, you know, even if you raise your their prices, you know, whatever, 3% or 5, whatever the inflation is, that's status quo. Early on, I was just happy somebody wanted to pay us. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, getting people to pay is not the issue. The question is, can we keep it cost effective? One of the questions you get sort of from some upfront people is like, well, my price go down over time, right? You get that as like a wishful thing. Like it's going to be a huge build out of front. Will it go down? And to a certain extent, I think that a lot of SEO agencies have used you know, until inflation hit the way it was, that there are certain economies of scale that you get over time as authority is built, potentially. Depends what your goal is. If your goal is market domination versus a good placement with consistent cases and a, and a good ROI, and that we, you know, there was always that, that inflation component, especially when it was lower, was sort of the benefit of the authority and the time that had been there, you could use a couple less links and get away with it. But the combination of increased competition, that gig is up. And so that that is where, you know, when we do see jumps, I'm sure it's the same with you, right? I know you do 
quality work. But if there's not enough resources in it, the market's going to speak. And if you can only put so much into it, then those players are going to be like, hey, I'm not getting the love that I wanted. And that it sort of dovetails to an interesting question I got a lot more of that I feel like, again, a few players have done as good a job as any of scaling. That's what scared me when I when I spun this out was you could take 10 clients and do well for them, right? You could have a couple of guys assisting. That, that's not the issue. The issue is at scale, can this be done at the elite level? That piece dovetails into this cost question. One guy and his boxers can take on a couple sites and do some good work. But is that something that's going to be replicable and scalable? Once you get to that point with teams, the benefit that we have is that with great managers, they can you know, train up the right people. We don't do a ton of lateral hiring. You know, in the, in the legal world, the big bad corporate firms, I work for a Cravath, which is like one of the best corporate law firms in the world. And historically, I think it's changed over the years, but when I was there back in the day as a clerk, they only took on summer associates and first years and trained them in their way, the Cravath way. I would rather have the, the Blue Shark methodology with great managers that buy in, training people. We now have a huge summer class, we call them fellows, that build up in order to replicate because it is the replication and consistency over time that gets you that ROI versus some visionary that has a crazy idea that works, but that isn't the scalable component because you see a lot of stuff where that's great for one site, but can you get that across your entire portfolio? I think of it from more of a binary perspective. There are some hybrids and I think this is applicable to any business. So when you're thinking about scale, you can scale vertically in terms of increasing fees and can continue to go up market and you scale by getting bigger and better clients you, or you can scale horizontally and more more and more productization repeatable assembly line you know henry ford style in the legal vertical i see it in saying it binary you, your settlement firm versus your litigating firm you take an individual like lanier he doesn't need more than the case he gets a year or whatever, right? He's getting maximum value versus these large settlement firms. They need a lot of reps, right? You need these great trial attorneys versus maybe just some paralegals and people that do the work and can settle them pre-lit. There are hybrids that have the big trial reputation and have maybe a settlement team and things like that. In the marketing space, it's the same way. So, you see these firms, these large, large digital agencies. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but um, there, there are some that we all know. That you're, talking the, you're talking about the enterprise level, yeah, um, yeah. But, but, but you know, servicing the legal space. Gotcha. Right there. The further you go in productization, the less you can customize, and the further it is Ooh. away from your executive team. Now you can train great people and have, you know, coaching and follow your methodology, but I feel, you know, in Bloom's taxonomy, you've got people that can read something, take a quiz and pass. And then you got people that can teach. And then you got people that can see all opportunities. It takes a lot more time and expertise. Well, part of the reason I think that we, we've been successful uh, in our in our respective uh, ventures is that it's been protected from some of those because it, to scale at the levels they have, the only way to really do that is through paid search. And paid search works, right? You know, you put money in, you can get it. But most of those larger players haven't really played in the SEO world. When they do, it's fiction. They don't really build content or links. How many times do you have somebody telling you about the SEO they got and they have no content or links? And you're just like, this is crazy town. That to me is the protected market that we play in is that it's people that can't get that. And that, you know, ironically, we've seen some of the legacy players that have sold out to SaaS players, and they're literally selling a $300 product. It's just apple and oranges to what we are doing and who we're servicing. So I sometimes feel like I'm stuck between two worlds because we want that growth. At the same time, we're not willing to get to the, you know, McDonaldization of the process. We need some of that in order to have efficiencies, but that if you are doing this right, you are thinking about what you're doing, how you're doing it. You're constantly evolving. So there are best practices that need to be scaled and replicated because if it was fully SaaS 
operated, you and I would get crushed. You can't do it that way, at least today, for the foreseeable future. If AI writing got to the point where you don't really need to think about it, you just throw some AI writing on it, like that would be a game changer where people could come in and throw stuff at it. I think we have a little bit of time before that fully happens. You know, you looked at DUI lawyers years ago, we're like, we're going to be out of business because there'll be a breathalyzer in every car. At some point when you could cheaply and quickly do SEO or, or when Google doesn't need links and is fully based on non-link input, you know, again, I'm sure we'll find a way to pivot into it, but the current iteration doesn't leave these larger either enterprise or SaaS-based models really competing in the world that you and I play in. Digital marketing is not immune to major market disruptors. Google's local service ads are changing what it means to offer geographic exclusivity. Chris wanted to hear Seth's take on this complicated and often polarizing shift. In our little geeky world, this is the hottest topic and it's getting really murky as people open offices in other areas, partially based on business model, partially worse on the proximity updates that, you know, we've always looked at the core original spot and use that as the beacon if there is to be, right, right? And everything else is fair game. But then we get a legacy client put a pin on the map in that market. This ironically wasn't even done by us. It was a pin put on the map there. My mantra, and I always say this, people hear what they want to hear is it's that primary office. The only, if you go beyond that, there's not even a chance. There are people out there that think there shouldn't be any exclusivity at all. I'm torn. I get all the different sides. Going back, let's, they're, they're sold, so I can talk about this. I remember talking to Dan Goldstein from page one, an early SEO, let's call it first generation. And he had a rule of a, a max of three. He hated the conversation. You don't want to have the conversation. There's right of first refusal concepts where somebody comes in, but that's always a non-ideal Arch one. rival concept. Right, no, 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 no. And to me, that's the one I like. I don't want to be working up for an arch rival, meaning if this is your arch rival, I get that. As a law firm owner, I don't want that there. First, is there enough budget to justify something like that? That's the first question. Some people are saying, even with maximum budget, should that be there? I I think the new normal is going to be, first, the dollar figure for exclusivity is going to change dramatically. People are ahead of the curve on me in this. We're probably later to the game, where in order to justify it, because in one sense, it doesn't matter. You know What you don't want is a scorpion-type situation where... 20 people are fighting in the market on an auction. There is an actual conflict of interest there. This is what this local thing has done, is that there are now 20 sub-markets to a market. We are right now at a crux that we are seeing a move from when you and I may have started our company where we're like, yes, you're our guy in this market. It's no longer as clear as it was And that all of that's going to be revisited going forward as the market changes. If the other top players aren't offering it, you're more emboldened to sort of hold firm and say, look, this is nonsense versus, you know, like you want somebody like, because you get this, right? Oh, I want exclusivity for a nominal amount of money. And two things, it doesn't make economic sense for your own company, but it doesn't really affect them. It's not going to make a difference. It's in the head. You don't want somebody thinking you're not loyal to them right? That you're, you're, yeah. you're with their enemy. But what I'm, I'm starting to see more and more is, okay, you want exclusivity? There's a guy out there offering it. Good luck with that. And so as the top players are saying, it's too complicated because it's, it's not like lawyers want more and more, just like we're talking about for ourselves, different things that we've done for our own companies. I've moved a company out of a law firm. Lawyers are like, I'm in South Dakota, but it's really cold here. I'm going to put an LA office. And so you're seeing, and because of how easy it is with digital to just put a, literally a pin on the map, you're seeing all sorts of crazy permutations. And the last thing I want to do is do something that's wrong by somebody. So yes, the hot topic of the day, I think it's changing on a bunch It also goes back to the point you made before, because it wasn't like, here's $8,000 and we're going to do really well here. It's now, here's $8,000. Let's make sure we're building the asset. It's there. The ROI is there, but you're not crushing a market at $8,000. You want to own a market, fine. For what own a market means has changed dramatically now, if it's even possible. You're dead on. You're dead on on everything that I'm seeing as well. First of all, we don't want to restrict our client's ability to grow. 
So there's a concept of that, right? So we don't want to restrict them. The other thing is if you're going to pay that, that additional amount, why not just put it in production instead of just this vanity fear number? If an agency charges, let's say $5,000 a month just for exclusivity and it's not right. appended to the service, you're paying just for fear that $5,000 could go into marketing service and generation. And radio and TV, they already own the territory. So they can give true exclusivity away because they own the, the air rights, the distribution capabilities versus, you know, for SEO, you might be restricted to proximity of their location, how many reviews they have. I'll give you one. You've had a, you have a flagship client, a good, good friend of mine who, you know, comes up outside of his market. As you get good, you may not just be in your hometown. So are you now violating exclusivity for a client because that person's permeated? And as I mentioned, somebody else puts a pin on the map somewhere and it's a client of yours in another market. That becomes, you know, we get people calling us screaming. Uh, I think that the, the future is going to be very different than the past on this. And I think a lot of it will be what the market will bear. Because look, it's it's capitalism. If there's an economic incentive there, but I think that as our mutual business models have grown and you see how fungible it is, but talk, I'll put on the lawyer hat for a second. Part of the reason you get there as a lawyer is you're a contentious fuck and you, you know, you build and you grow and you fight. And so the idea that somebody is fighting with you, I get that as a lawyer, I, the piece I don't like about it as a lawyer, stay with me because the moment I'm not with you, you'll be with somebody else. There was a fear factor. And it's like your, your secret sauce, your guy you're working with will now be working against you. And that's the one dynamic that when we are rowing together, it's great. The question is, is it abused? Because I think it can be abused. Just like a scorpion, if you get to the point where the number is so high, and what is that number? I don't know. You could get to the point where you can't do a good job because your interests are diversified, not from a amount of work point of view, but you could actually get to the point where there's a three pack. And are you going to be able to get more than three people into a three pack? If you had not mentioned this during the podcast, I'd be discussing this with after is the hot topic of the day. Yeah. I think we're in the middle of a flux, That's right? Exactly. I, I would be discussing with you afterwards too. And I just want to say one other thing, just as kind of a warning for the attorneys listening. If an agency freely gives away exclusivity, gives away their opportunity costs freely and loosely, First of all, typically, they aren't providing a service where they're retaining their clients. They don't care about losing the growth. They don't care about the opportunity cost. They're going to churn and burn. And also, an exclusivity agreement should be accompanied by a long-term commitment, in my opinion. Because if we're on month-to-month contracts, there is no exclusivity because you can you have a 30-day out. So I would just say those are a couple warnings. And I would say being transparent, and, and, and I know Seth feels the same way because this is kind of like the hot topic. I don't really know what the perfect answer here is. I know that there's an integrity standpoint where you want to do right with your clients and that's where you can't take on, you know, 10 in a market and actually provide value in most situations to all 10. So I, I truthfully, no, you know, being an SEO guy, I don't know the answer. You want to be in the corner fighting for somebody. That That's why I got in the business. And you don't want somebody to think that your interests are not aligned, but I'm seeing people making moves and doing interesting stuff that you want to see done. And I think that it's just, it's a question of how it's defined. And again, it comes back to what I've always said, which is who are your top competitors and making sure that we're not, that you're not sitting there, but you also want to make sure that if somebody opens a random satellite office, that you're, you're violating a contract. And that's what we're doing a lot of internal thinking about, about how do you protect the integrity of the relationship and be fighting alongside somebody while at the same time, at some point that person may want to do things and you don't want to limit them because it's not a TV market. It is much more amorphous. Yeah. And I like the R tribal clause a lot. You know, if you're in a Florida market and you're a newer firm, you may not want to put, you know, Morgan and Morgan down as your R tribal because they're truly not your R tribal where at the level of growth that maybe a smaller firm's at. It gets a little murky there. I think what you do would be really cool bringing a panel of people to sort of talk it out because you're hearing the same conversation and you're seeing lawyers do it because they're looking at things differently themselves. People don't want to pay for a premium for exclusivity. They want to be able to put every dollar they can to getting ROI. And I think that's the piece that, that's making that change where people are like, as long as I'm getting X number of cases, I'm happy. It's not the rah-rah piece 
it's part of the nature of being a lawyer that's there, but that it's it, it's certainly a balance. Absolutely. Seth, you guys do incredible work over Blue Shark and, and Price Benowitz. One final question. What's next for Blue Shark? What's next for Price? You know, I, I feel very blessed to the law firm to make it through COVID. I did a, do a lot of, you know, talking about how to build and grow law firms. And the last 24 months have been unbelievable ride. It just, as interesting as it has been on the digital side, the law firms have had all sorts of going virtual and all these things. So I'm just thankful that we are able, you know, we've created an incredible team to execute on the work that needs to be done uh, and service the clients day in, day out. For digital, it's the challenge of staying one step ahead. Whether one year it's LSAs, the next year it's um, you know proximity search. To me, it's the puzzle of figuring out what is next, what's going to get that competitive advantage, and then bringing that to market. That that's sort of what it, what I've enjoyed. How about yourself? What's next for rankings? Yeah, we've always worked with strategic partners for design, and really we're, we're looking at more design just because of how impactful just the user experience can be, not only from a coding perspective, but just a creative perspective too, and how a consumer can feel about the experience they they have when they land on a website from a CRO perspective. But uh, are there days when you think like as an SEO, you know, like, you know, the content's really hard. And I, I, have, I have a predilection of not wanting content people in-house, like they, they could be oh, editors yeah. in-house, but I just never want writers in-house. I've had so many incredibly difficult situations that I'd rather have that person in their own home ecosystem doing their thing and sending us content than actually under a roof. That's just, again, but that as you see that your design, you almost feel like when I was at waiter way back in uh, end of high school, beginning of college, the expediter where you're bringing these different pieces together because as it gets more competitive, you want to make sure that you are bringing the best of each of these different components together. This is something that may not resonate with the audience as much, but inside baseball, when we see some of these, how to scale SEO companies or how to scale digital companies, there's a whole world of like, oh, go find a white label agency to do that work. This is the master of your own domain. You want to be able to do this, but how do you continue to push and grow? It's a balance between what do you want your own thumbprint on? No different than the law firm with the litigation. How much of this litigation is in-house? How much is co-counseled? How much is bringing the, these outside consultants for things versus having every expertise in-house? And I feel like that is sort of the story. I mean, to watch you from afar doing some pretty cool stuff, figuring out where do you have the person under your roof and where do you bring in outside expertise? And when do you eventually say, you know what? It's great but I need to have the most control over this. I feel like a very frenetic relationship and partly why we've built and scaled our own training program to be able to replicate as much of that as we can, but it's a constant back and forth where you're like, that's great, but can we get something even better bringing this resource in? And it's sort of why corporations end up yeah, we've talked about some stuff before the show, acquiring because there's stuff that you can do when you bring those resources in-house that's better and stronger than when it's a third-party relationship. In the agency space, I see it kind of three ways. So I see it in-house FTEs. You have the most control. You hinted on that, but they also take the most effort, right? You got to train them. You got to find good talent. You got to nurture their culture all these times. So you got high control, high maintenance. Uh, then you've got freelancers, right? Or subcontractors. There's medium control, and medium maintenance. So medium control and someone else can just go grab your freelancer's time and capacity, right? But medium maintenance, because typically you don't hire a subcontractor or a freelancer that doesn't know the craft, right? So it's a little less maintenance because they can hit the ground running. You're paying for an outsource company that does intakes. They at least know how to do intakes, maybe not as good or as well as the FTE, but it's less maintenance. And then you have outsource, white label, strategic partners. Outsourcing is kind of taboo, but we all do it on a day-to-day -day basis. We all go to, to restaurants and eat burgers and go out to dinner and have someone else cook our food. And just because we have a bad experience at a restaurant doesn't mean that we just stop going. It's maybe you didn't eat at the right restaurant, right? Or maybe you had the wrong meal. So, you know, strategic partners is the phrase, you know, so you have the lowest control. You're not going to tell that company how to make their widget, 
No, I, I, I disagree. I mean, sometimes, you know, meaning to me, it, it, again, you don't want to be a prick about it, but like, if you can't get it, you can't work with them. Well, and, it's leverage, right? Right. right. So if you're a big, no, 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 but even if it's not, even if you don't have leverage, you're like, this is what I can live with if you can't deliver yeah. it. And that's where a lot of stuff, like that's why we're both frenetic, right? It would be great to have it because the full-time equivalents come with the drama and issues and turnover and this and that versus, but that strategic partner is dealing with the same thing. You just don't see the sausage making. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So there's all different dynamics. We do a, we do a mixture of both, you know. So like some car manufacturers don't do their tires, some do their tires, right? So from ours, we work with strategic partners for content, right? They supply us licensed attorney editors. They supply us a writer pool of seventy plus ten ninety nine legal writers. There's pros and cons of each. I have a little less control, but in terms of my capacity to deliver maybe economies of scale for pricing, there's some advantages. We've tried both. That's kind of where we're at right now. And we're always trying to improve. That goes back to the whole, I didn't explain as well as I could on vertical integration. If you want to take, you know, backwards integration, if you want to bring that in, you have a little bit more control and you, you know, there's some advantages, there's more costs, things like that. But yeah, Seth, this has been a lot of fun. I would love to get that, you know, for any of the digital marketers experts listening, I would love to have that conversation, like kind of a nice heated little negotiated panel on geographic exclusivity. So just look up me and Seth. Seth, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely, it's a lot of fun. There is no one right way to market your firm, but picking a medium that you like and will produce consistently should inform your marketing choices. Looking at SEO as an asset of your business rather than a fixed ROI can help you build a better marketing strategy. The digital marketing landscape is always going to be evolving and having someone who lives and breathes these changes in your corner will keep you ahead of the curve especially when it comes to highly debated topics like geographic exclusivity. I'd like to thank Seth Price from Blue Shark and Price Benowitz for sharing his story with us today. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from this conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Sonia Palmer. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Laher, premiering in March of 2022 a new podcast where I'll be joined by some of the best and brightest female attorneys, judges, entrepreneurs, and politicians to discuss their unique career paths, tools, and lessons learned. Chris will be back next week with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level.